Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 98, the 660s BC, part 3. Are we in 666 yes, now? 666, that's the... This is most unsatisfying. Yeah. This is the uh, uh, SRHeadon Chronicle, right? Yeah. The second year, 666 slash 665, uh, nothing, something, mm. lost text, mm. combat, combat, nothing, nothing, nothing. Is it? There's nothing more. Nothing more in the tablet. Combat, combat, combat. So obviously there's some battling um, going on. I mean, that could have been the time before. I mean, we know that there's combat going on, you know, in Egypt. I think yeah. probably in and Egypt. We lose the we lose the source until six fifty two. Yeah, we lose the source until six fifty two. That's things. I know. So now I'm just gonna make up stuff for the next until then. For forty years. <laughs> yeah. I'm just gonna make things up. Okay, that should make short episodes. Yeah. Yeah. I will. the thing is about this is like you know, and I, I this is what I like about how you made this podcast. Blow blow our own horn here a little. It's like a lot of times when I'm doing the research, you know, they're they're talking big eras. You know, they're saying, well, this happened and you go 30, 40 years. But, you know, in our own time, that's a lot of things happen in that time. So by this format, you know, and I'm forced to do it this year, this year, this year. So you really get a chronological thing of what's going on. Not like the hindsight big picture. Do you know what I mean? I want as much detail as possible. Yeah. And I, I mean, my original thought was that this format would break down in the year 500, but we can probably make it break down early. Yeah, well, maybe. Yeah, 500 has got to be impossible. I mean, unless you do yeah, year to year. BC. Right, is. right. Oh, no, I know you meant BC, but still, a lot goes on in those times for sure. My, my original plan was to do only Greece then, but we'll, we'll change that. We'll keep doing something yeah. like this. That's a later yeah, problem. We'll do, keep going along with it. I'll probably be so old by then. 
So <laughs> but I did throw this little bit in here because, you know, 666, I don't know if, you know, like people, English people, American people, they, you know, 666 is the number of the devil. Did you ever hear that? Of right. course. I used to be a fan of heavy metal, so I know. Right, that. right. So do you know the what it really meant? So no. a little extra. So here's the deal. People think this is the number of the devil, right? Because it's in the number of the beast, the mark of the beast in Revelation, in the biblical book Revelation. But what he was really referring to was something else. So in ancient Greek and even in Hebrew, there are no numbers. They use letters instead of numbers. So it's like A equals one, B equals two. And then you go out into the tens and the hundreds. So like every word or name also has a number associated with it. So you could write, and there's a video of this, so you could uh, post it. So in Revelation, the author John, he gives the reader a little riddle. He says, let the one with understanding reckon the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And if you put that out in Hebrew and Greek, it comes out to exactly Nero Caesar. Oh, yeah. so it was a code for the, you know, he was against the Christians. And so he's the bad, they, you know, that's all it is. No devil coming to get Poor you. Nero. Yeah. You can hear me talk more about Nero with David Oscarson in the Sotonius episode. Yeah, those were good. That we did. Thank you. <laughs> so we have nothing for 665. Isn't that amazing? Nothing for 665. But we can imagine this situation in Egypt uh, continuing. Yeah, I mean, unstable. Absolutely. Nico plotting another rebellion against someone. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Left. Okay, let's go to six sixty four because yeah. there's a lot going on in six sixty. We could probably have a whole. This will probably be a whole podcast. Oh my yeah, god, there's a lot. It starts with the Olympics, so we'll get the Olympics done first. Um, it was uh, Chionis of Sparta. He won the Diolos, the Diolos, and the Stadion. And that this was his first of three stadium victories. And the third was in the 650s, and he broke a record then. So we'll cover him then. And um, I think, I don't know if we said it before, but the dia- the Dialos is a double stadium. Yeah, we yeah, did that. To run back and forth. Run up and then we'll come back. Good work, Counties of Sparta. Yeah. And then there's not a lot of information of specifics, but there is, uh, this is the recorded, the first Greek naval battle according to Thucydides. Wow, that's an important yeah. event. He said... How did they not have any naval battles before I mean, this? But maybe- in Greece, I guess, you know, because there's definitely other... I looked it up, there was other naval battles. I mean, we know there was the Sea Peoples, right? When they tried to invade Egypt, there was a naval battle there. There was other naval battles. Uh, they probably didn't fight uh, any, any other people on ships. Uh, a naval battle is a battle with ships against ships, right? Yes, I, I mean, yeah, I mean... They, 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 they I mean, they show pictures of them fighting them on, with their ships in Egypt. So, oh wow, I yeah, didn't know that. you know. So, I mean, maybe not ramming each other, that kind of thing. But that's what the cities. I imagine the Egyptian navy would be pretty bad. I would imagine. I mean, until they had, they must have Phoenicians and things like that. Okay, yes. yeah. So this is what he Thucydides says. But as the power of Hellas grew and the acquisition of wealth became more an object, the revenues of the state's increasing tyrannies were by their means established almost everywhere. The old form of government being hereditary monarchy with definite prerogatives. And Hellas began to fit out fleets and apply herself more closely to the sea. 
It is said the Corinthians were the first to approach the modern style of naval architecture and that Corinth was the first place in Hellas where galleys were built. And we have um, a Corinthian shipwright making four ships for the Samians. Dating from the end of this war, it is nearly 300 years ago that he went to Samos. Again, the earliest sea fight in history was between the Corinthians and the Corsarians. This was about 260 years ago, dating from the same time. So that's where we get the year. Wow. So, yeah, that's where we get the year. And that's all, you know, I mean, I don't know anything else about I couldn't find it. I did look. Probably when I'm doing the 650s, I'll find the whole story. But I really, really did look for this one. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important yeah, event. I think. And if you are into naval battles, you should definitely listen to ancient history, ancient warfare podcasts, because they talk a lot about the triremes and the biremes and the, the bigger yeah. ships and what use they had for them, etc. So that's that's all there. Yeah. Maybe that was like but the first time they ram each other, that kind of a thing. You know, the other battles, they were shooting arrows at each other from the ships. Probably. You know? I mean, Thucydides was pretty great. I mean, God, you feel you read him, you feel like you're reading a modern historian. Yeah, good work, Thucydides. Yeah, thanks. thanks for leaving it hanging, too. <laughs> <laughs> and we have another big event. And it's the death of Taharka. Yes. So Taharka has been pretty successful. He dies in his 27th year, most likely 664. Yeah. So we are going to use that. Please. He is succeeded by his nephew, Tanutamun, the son of Shabaka and Taharka's sister. So that's succession, right? That's a good old Nubian mm-hmm. style. Very much nephew, brother, etc. Yes. And soon after becoming king, Tanutamun had a dream with two serpents, representing the kingship of Kush in Egypt, of course, which he in- interpreted them as saying, quote, The Southland is yours. Seize for yourself the Northland. And this is on the dream stele of Tanutamun. He mobilized an army. He headed to Memphis, and in the ensuing battle, his forces fought with the Assyrians and the Delta kings, who seemed to remain loyal then mm-hmm. to Assyria. But th- we have more bad news here from this year. It's the death of Necho, the first. Mm-hmm. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And he is uh, survived and succeeded by his son, Sameticus. Sameticus, yes. Semeticus. So crazy. We'll talk more so about him later. Say, it's with a P, but it's Semeticus. Just like you said it. Semeticus. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the Kushite forces were defeated and fled south. And the Assyrians marched south to Thebes and Tanutamun fled. And uh, then the Assyrians opened a big can of whoop-ass <laughs> on Thebes. And this is an, a very important event in the Assyrian-Egyptian war because we have a Hebrew prophet, Nahum, who wrote about this thing 50 years later, and it's in the Bible itself. So this is what Nahum says. Are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile with water around her? The river was her defense, the waters her wall. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. Lots were cast for her nobles, and all her great men were put in chains. This is the first time somebody actually sacks Thebes, at least since the days of the Hyksos. Right. So the Egyptians and the Nubians have collected this enormous wealth in Thebes. Tons. And now Ashurbanipal's men on scene will take it all. We have Assyrian annals reporting that the inhabitants were deported, and they took a large booty of gold, silver, precious stones, clothes, horses, fantastic animals. I'm sure there were monkeys. Yeah. As well as two obelisks covered in electrum weighing 2,500 talents. That's about 75.5 metric tons or 166,500 pounds. Electrum is a naturally occurring alloy of gold and silver with trace amounts of copper and other metals. The ancient Greeks called it gold or white gold as opposed to refined gold. Its color ranges from pale to bright yellow, depending on the proportions of gold and silver. And this will be important when we start to talk about coins. But uh, Semedicus is now on the winning team. So he gets to start the 26th dynasty of Egypt officially under Assyrian rule. Right. And his father died. He he really, he died for Assyria, right? Neko died for Ashurbanipal. Proving his sweet talk was yeah, true. Exactly. What a story. Yeah. So now Semeticus, this starts, this is officially starts, this officially, you know, in our record starts it. He had a fight to, you know, to become the pharaoh and take over the whole country. So. Yeah. But there's this really, really cool thing of what, what Taharka, um, his burial site is super, super cool. There's this mountain. I watched this video and then I did research on it. So the mountain, um, there's a, where he's buried, it's called Jebel Barkel. It means pure mountain. So it, the, to the Egyptians and the Nubians, they, they treat this as their god, a moon, because it looks like, um, a cobra. The, there's a pinnacle that looks like a cobra. Um, yeah. And so it's way since 1450 BC, when the pharaoh thought most the third, you know, he extended his empire down there. It became a, a, you know, a holy city, a holy area. So the Egyptians and the Kushites interpreted the pinnacle as a powerful magical effigy 
with multiple meanings depending on where it was seen. On the one hand, it was perceived as the erect phallus of Amun as, in his role as creator, and the other it looked like a cobra. And the cobra, you know, is the symbol on the, for the Egyptian kinghood. But when you have the two cobras on your crown, that means, you know, you're the king of Egypt and Nubia and Cush. It's a super, you know, holy site. So what happened is Taharka used that as his, um, he put an inscription way, way up. It's like a butte. So there's the Hatal pinnacle part, and then there's a flat butte. And so he, they would have had to build like scaffolding and go way, way up there. And there's little holes. They put little statues and things in there. And then there's an inscription, um, up on the top, on the butte. And, it had gold over gold over it. They see because these uh, this guy in the eighties he climbed up it, but he couldn't quite get all the way up. So then in the documentary, these two British girls climbers they climb up it and they get in closer and they take pictures of it and then it's translated and they they could see the holes where the gold was. And I'll tell you what the gold's about in a minute here. But the inscription says, "I Taharka, the good god." the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, who lives forever. I have destroyed the Bedouin of Asia, and I cut down the desert dwellers of Libya. And the Bedouin of Asia, that refers to the Assyrians. So he's trolling the Assyrians in his death, saying that. I mean, obviously, he didn't really beat them all, but he beat them a couple times. So um, so they had this uh, gold on there where the sun would glisten. But here's the cool, really cool part, is that... um. So in death, every king was believed to literally become Osiris, just as in life, every king was literally his son Horus, because Osiris was assassinated by his brother Seth, who was the god of chaos, and he was relegated to the underworld. And his death was avenged by Horus, whom the gods mandated to rule our world. So Taharka's pyramid, and he has this unusual underground tomb, he was um, closely identified with o- Osiris because he o- was assassinated by the forces of chaos, just like Taharka was, you know, force assassinated by the armies of Assyria, the forces of chaos there. And that was unprecedented in Egyptian history, right? So um, it's like a parallel to the um, Osiris legend. So his tomb is, you know, where the other, he's a pyramid. Um, but the way it's built, they always thought it was weird how it was. It wasn't quite as big as the other ones, this kind of thing. Um, on the Egyptian civil calendar, New Year's Day is calculated officially as the moment when the bright star Sirius first appears above the horizon just before dawn when it's observed at Karnak, which is where his term, uh, pyramid is. So in the year 664, the year of Taharka's death, this moment occurred on August 7th. But now, due to a slight wobble in the Earth's rotation over the last 2,600 years, it occurs on July 31st. So, in Taharka's day, there was a festival which marked the end of the flood season and honored Osiris' death. And that began around November 23rd. In our time, it's November 16th. So, today, if you stand on the summit of Jebel Barkle on the cliff edge, directly opposite the pinnacle, at sunrise on July 31st and look to the horizon, you'll see the sun rise directly over Taharka's pyramid. So in the ancient mind, that would have been a metaphor for the king's rebirth as Osiris. And conversely, if you stand on the summit of Taharka's pyramid at sunset on November 16th and look towards Jebel Barkal, you'll see the sun set directly behind Jebel Barkal's pinnacle. 
And you, also you had that gold where it just like would have shimmered. So like he had his whole burial up to be like, you know, show forever. And you could go and see that even today, except for the gold. The gold is gone. Wow. Right. Cool. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, so Tark is quite a character. There's, um, there, Will Smith was, uh, was working on a movie. They didn't finish it. About Taharka? Yeah, about Taharka. He's supposed to play Taharka. Yeah, wow. Taharka's a pretty good character. I, I should put out this picture of this. There's a beautiful statuette, a little statue of Taharka and the Falcon God. It's in the Louvre. And it's a, this, this picture of Taharka, you know, like kneeling in front of this giant falcon. And it's a really beautiful, um, you know, it's gold and bronze and silver. That's a lot of good press for someone who actually lost Egypt. Yeah, I know. True that. And he gets bad press too, because in the, if you go to the museum, the museum in Cairo, where they list all the dynasties, they don't have theirs on there yeah. at all. To wow. Why yeah, not? They, well, the 26th dynasty, like they went and they erased everything about them. So they just didn't want to say that they were, you know, ruled by Nubians. But now they're ruled by Assyrians. Sort of, but now really, the this is the Sais, this 26th dynasty is the, this this far away for the Assyrians. We really don't have them. The Assyrians don't really get involved very much here anymore. The Assyrians will have an interesting relationship with the 26th dynasty. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's true. They're sort of allies. Sort of? I guess they I guess they are. I have to do the research on that yet. <laughs> I just know what's coming up. Yeah, the big year 612. Yes. I'm just going to leave this inventory. But we have a long way to go. Yes, before. that is a long way to go. <laughs> uh, probably. I'll probably be a lot older. Uh, do we have anything else on 664? Yeah, it keeps going. Elam. Tell me. We're back to Assyria, and there's stuff goes on in Elam. So they've been pretty peaceful since from 690 to 665, which is 25 years. They were Elam and Assyria pretty much at peace. Well, that's a long time. I know, time. for those two. They're always fighting with each other. And back in 674, Ezra Haddon, he made peace treaty with the king, Yurtok. Remember that big deal? They had that peace treaty. That's why he was able to come over here. He was sure his flank was covered, and he came to Egypt. And this is cool, yeah. too. So in the 660s, there was patterns of really severe climate disruption, and there was drought in Elam, and there was a lot of rainfall in Assyria. So the Assyrians sent grain as famine aid to Elam, and they also provided temporary homes in Assyria for the climate refugees. So, like, they're, you know, pretty good friends. Wow. But then, for some reason, in 664, Elam suddenly turned hostile. And so the governor of Nippur and the chief of the Gambulu tribe in Babylonia, they talked Urtok into invading Babylonia. I, I don't know why. Hmm. Maybe because of the two kings, that kind of thing. Yeah, maybe because they had had their ritual, and now they felt like, now we should have independence They're again. They're always trying to get away from the Syrians, aren't they? Of course. So they, And they have an Assyrian as the king of Babylonia, Tamashumokin. Yeah. But I think they were trying to turn him into a Babylonian, maybe. I think that's yeah, the plan. Yeah, like he went native, you know? So, yeah, so Ashurbanipal yeah. didn't even really send anybody out, Mark. He sent a reconnaissance mission out there. And he confirmed that the Elamites were there. They were threatening Babylon itself, even. So then he sent an army. So then they say as soon as uh, the Assyrians say that the Elamites withdrew, there was no resistance right then. But then they chased them down right near their own land, and they beat them. They had a fight with them. But then here's... Served them right. Yes, I know, seriously. Like, why would you... Why have to poke the, the, poke the cage, you know? Poke the 
poke the bee's nest, the hornet's nest, as they say. Yeah. But then before the end of the year, 664, Ertak died and a revolution brought a new Assyrian, an anti-Assyrian ruler, Tumen, to the throne. And he will definitely come into our story again. The sons of Ertak and the royal families of him and in his previous king, I cannot pronounce that name. <laughs> Kumbankaltash II. Amazing. Yeah, that guy. They fled into Nineveh to the Assyrian court and they were given asylum. So now there's like a rival claimant to the Elamite throne in Assyria. So Ashurbanipal and Tumen were definitely not friends. So that's where that storm brews. That I know you know what happens. Yeah, I think Ashurbanipal now is um, done with Egypt. Egypt is under control. Egypt is doing what he intended. So now he has to turn his eyes somewhere else because his God demands war. Yes. He is a war-demanding god. So we're still in 664. And now for Gygus. Yeah, Gygus is yeah, back. Yeah, in 664. What does he do? He sends an embassy to Assyria. So it's like amazing. Like, there's so much about Gygus in this period. He's really a famous guy. He sends an, an embassy to Assyria. Um, there's the most complete account comes from this, uh, it's called the Rassam Cylinder in um, of Ashurbanipal. Um, hang on a minute. I'll tell you what they say because it's interesting. Here it is. This is great. That's what they call him. They call him Gugu. <laughs> Gugu, king of Lydia, a district of the other side of the sea, a distant place whose name the kings my father had not heard. Asher, the god my creator, caused to see my name in a dream. Lay hold of the feet of Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria, and conquer thy foes by calling upon his name. On the day that he beheld this vision, he dispatched his messenger to bring greetings to me. On account of this vision, which he beheld, he sent to me by the hand of his messenger and made it known to me. From the day that he laid hold of my royal feet, he overcame by the help of Asher and Ishtar, the gods, my lords, the Sumerians, who had been harassing the people of his land who had not feared my fathers, nor had laid hold even of my royal feet. Basically, what happened? He sent the messenger to Assyria because he was having trouble with the Sumerians. So he had apparently heard in a dream, well, go see this Ashurbanipal guy, and if you use his name in the name of the Lord Asher, while you fight the Sumerians, you'll win. That's how Ashurbanipal describes the story. The cool thing is they say when the rider got there, nobody could understand his uh, language. It's not that far away. You know, it could be. It's hard to say. I mean, they really, I mean, we know the Persians were that far out, but they weren't. So, Also, the Assyrians were never very interested in the Mediterranean. Right. So it's a, it's a long way away if you don't, don't go by sea. Yeah. It, it could be. A, he could have been Carian, a Carian language, which is a, an extinct language. It's part of Luvian. Which is mm -hmm. a Luvian is the language of where the Hittites were. Because the Hittites spoke Hittite, but the Luvians were their vassal states. And the Luvians had a whole culture. Yeah. They just found a Luvian. You see, that keeps coming up. They found a Luvian city and they found these Luvian inscriptions. The Luvians had um, hieroglyphics. So, and it has been translated. So, that's, that's the, the whole Luvian studies I mentioned that's super interesting. Um, so, he could have been carrying. Somehow, he must have been able to understand what he said and how do you understand? How did he understand about the dream? <laughs> Interesting. Right? 
But this is an extraordinary event. Yeah. So he came to see Asher Paul just to, I think he probably wanted to say, oh, I heard about this, mat, you know, really tough kingdom out here. Where, you know, make peace with them before um, there's a problem. Yeah. What, what are the Sumerians doing? Uh, they are, uh, found their new home in Turkey, pretty much. And they are just running around there and ex- trying to expand in directions where they find weak opponents. Yes. I, I mean, that seems to be what this, that seems to be the story of history. The horse nomads just keep coming into the, you know, the civilized, so to speak, areas and just fight them. But they've been around for a long time. They've now. been around forever. I'm just reading in the National Geographic that all Europeans are derived from, you know, people that came from Siberia and replaced the farmers, you know, that had been all through Europe and Turkey. And this was like 4500 BC. So it's like literally the story of history. So, um, that was it for Gaius. That's it for that part. But then in 662, they think he may have sent mercenary troops to Egypt to assist Semiticus, but not to fight the Assyrians. But Ashurbanipal didn't really appreciate that later, but he didn't do anything about it. They're not really sure. We're not really sure if he actually sent them or if they came from there, but we do know that Carrion mercenaries started to come into Egypt at this time during the beginning of the time of Semiticus, and that's when Greeks started getting into Egypt more. This is the period right now, and the Greeks are coming into Egypt, the the Carians, which were like Ionian Greeks, kind of. Obviously, we see that they speak a different language than Greek, but they come from that same, that sort of that area. And this is the beginning of a long relationship between the 26th dynasty and... uh... The Greek Correct. world. Correct. So we don't know. Um, we don't know for sure. Herodotus says the story about Semeticus. Let me tell you that story. Yes, please So do. Herodotus sums it up good. So remember we said he's still, tr- uh, Semeticus is trying to, you know, solidify his rule. So there was a bunch of kings there. So there's 12 kings in the Delta area and in Egypt. So Herodotus says, now the 12 kings dealt justly. And as time went on, they be came to sacrifice in the temple. On the last day of the feast, they being about to pour libations, the high priests brought about the golden vessels, which they commonly used for this. But he counted wrongly and gave the twelve only eleven. So he who stood last of them, Semiticus, got no vessel. Wherefore, taking off his bronze helmet, he held it out and poured the libation with it. All the other kings, too, were wont to wear helmets, and then were helmeted. It was not in guile, then, that Semeticus held out his headgear, but the rest marked Semeticus's deed and remembered the oracle which promised the sovereignty of all Egypt to whoever should pour libation from a vessel of bronze. Wherefore, though they deemed Semeticus not to deserve death, for they proved him and found that he had acted without intent, they resolved to strip him of the most of his power and chase him away into the marshes, and that he was not able to concern himself with the rest of Egypt. Now, it continues. This Semiticus had formerly been in Syria. Maybe they mean Assyria, but whether he had fled from Sabacos, the Ethiopian, who killed his father Nekos, then, when the Ethiopian departed by reason of what he saw in a dream, Egyptians of the province of Sais brought him back from Syria. Now Semeticus was for the second time king, when it happened to him to be driven away into the marshes by the eleven kings by reason of the matter of the helmet. 
Therefore, he held himself to have been outrageously dealt with by them and had a mind to be avenged on those who had expelled him. And he sent to inquire of the oracle of Leto in the town of Buto, which is the most infallible in Egypt. The oracle answered that he should have vengeance when he saw men of bronze coming from the sea. Somaticus secretly disbelieved that men of bronze should come to aid him. But after no long time, certain Ionians and Carians, voyaging for plunder, were forced to put in on the coast of Egypt, where they disembarked in their mail of bronze, and an Egyptian came into the marsh country and brought news to Semeticus, for he had never before seen mailed men, that men of bronze were coming from the sea and were foraging the plain. Semeticus saw in this the fulfillment of the oracle, He made friends with the Ionians and Carians and promised them great rewards if they would join him. And having won them with the aid of such Egyptians, as consented and these allies, he deposed the eleven kings. That's how he became pharaoh of all Egypt with help of the Greek mercenaries. So I think that uh, this is a story that comes down to Herodotus, but it's uh, I would think Semeticus' grip on Egypt was much stronger than this. And also, we know that he had seen mailed warriors because he had seen the Assyrians. I thought the same thing, but it's, I think it was the, the men of bronze is the, the maybe the hoplite type of thing is the is the deal. Yeah, of course. And the Assyrians, uh, I think they had a lot of bronze stuff as yeah. well, but they, they had more iron. Yeah. So probably, so that's they do think that. So in in, in Ashurbanipal's inscriptions, he says the Gyges sent the mercenaries there, but not to fight the Assyrians, but to fight the other kings. Yeah. And that's why Ashurbanipal, that's why Guy just meets his end later, because he did he kind of dissed Ashurbanipal. I see. But yeah, so that's when the, this is when the Greeks start to come into Egypt. And this is how the 26th dynasty, you know, gets rid of all the other kings in Egypt. Yes. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. We have more from 662. Yeah. There's the camp. Where's this, this from? This is, um, this is from Ashurbanipal, and he had a, um, campaign against Arwad and Tyre. So Arwad's this little island. That's what's kind of cool there. He thought he could, you know, sort of dis Ashurbanipal because he's an island in the sea, but it was it's a tiny, tiny little island. Um, it had a powerful navy, and its ships are mentioned, and it's even in the Bible. And today it's a little town in Syria. It's this tiny little place, but the king of Arwad decided not to send his money, is what happens. And then Ashurbanipal marched an army over there, uh, then he really didn't have a big war or anything like that, but the king had to submit and he send one of his daughters to become a member of the harem. And Ashurbanipal says things like, and then made his daughter come and be my housekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> also Tyre? Yeah. Which would, you think Tyre would be wise enough to stick with the Assyrians at this point, but they they are... Another target of this campaign? Yeah, and I guess basically what he does is he comes and shows his army, you know, and everybody just, you know, gets back to, gets back in yeah, line. We'll, we'll better bait that guy. They are still around. Yeah, they're still doing and it. And the news of the Assyrian downfall is widely exaggerated. Yeah, exaggerated. right. How's it going? Yeah, the, the story of my death is widely exaggerated. Okay, on to 661. Yeah, 661. You don't have uh, a ton. There's this little, the reason I put it in here is this little story about this man named Yamani who sold a slave woman to an officer in Nineveh, and he was possibly a Greek. The only thing is, this is, like, you don't have much about the Greeks in Assyria. It's like, the Greeks didn't know about Assyria, and the Syrians didn't know about the Greeks. 
we had those old notes that some someone was raiding Cyprus uh, and uh, stuff like that. So they have mentioned the Greeks before, but it's very rarely. Yeah. And I think their their concept of what the Greeks are, uh, the Assyrians don't really know what Greeks yeah, are. Yeah, exactly. They're not really sure exactly Some what their view is. Uh, way far away. Yeah. They call them like almost Yamani because it's sort of like Ionian because they really only know the Ionian oh. Greeks. So they call them Yamani. So that kind of a thing. Uh, but you know, it's funny too, like Goliath, you know, the story, old story in the Bible, like Goliath was kind of a Greek. Yeah. Because he's a Philistine. Uh-huh. Yeah, you think about it. He has the graves on his feet. Graves meaning the greaves, you know, and he's had bronze armor. And he was a Philistine. And they pretty, I think they've shown now the Philistines were, you know, Greek and during, during the whole Sea Peoples thing. So, Ooh. yeah, I love that period. I mean, that's just amazing. So, yeah. So, the Greeks were sort of getting known, but not totally known. Um, but they will be, as we know. They sure will. <laughs> they, they take everything. I think we have to stop here. Yes, we did have to stop there. So join us next time for our final episode on the 660s BC. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.